What is going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 117 of RizzoCast. I'm Stephen Rizzotto, and today we are joined by a very special guest. He has managed in parts of 19 seasons at the big league level with the Tampa Bay Rays, the Chicago Cubs, and the Los Angeles Angels. And he led the Cubs to a very famous 2016 World Series championship, breaking their 108-year curse. It is manager Joe Madden. Joe, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. I'm doing great. You just gave me a little background about yourself working with the Giants there. I think that's outstanding. Good for you. Remember when I was the youngest manager in uh, the Angel organization when I was 27 uh, in Idaho Falls. When you said that, it made me think about that. Well, that's right. And uh, you could actually read about that experience. Uh, In case you guys don't know, Joe has a new book coming out on October 11th. Uh, It's called The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and in Life. Great title, by the way. Uh, And he he wrote it with veteran baseball writer Tom Verducci. This is a big deal, Joe. I mean, how did this kind of come about? And then what was the process like getting this book done? Yeah, and really, uh, 2008 with the Rays, we had a lot of success and people wanted me to do something back then. I said, I wasn't ready. I haven't done enough to really uh, validate a book. So kept waiting. And then uh, after we won the World Series with the Cubs and at the end with the Cubs in 2019, I approached Tom Berducci and I said, listen, um, I'm interested in doing something like this. Would you be? And we concluded that we were both interested. And then pandemic hits. And while the pandemic was uh, at its height, I had nothing to do but um, ride my bicycle. So I did. I attached a microphone, dictaphone in my pocket, and I rode around an RV park for about, I swear, 90 days, maybe. I got about 100 hours of tape and I gave it to Tom. And then he put his magic touch to it. Tommy's an outstanding writer, as as you've noticed from what you've read there. So that's it. It's been in the works since I was uh, six, probably, right? And eventually it's gotten to this particular point. Uh, I, I'm pleased with it. Uh, I, when I first read it, you could hear your voice and it's kind of weird when you hear your own voice in a book. But then I got over that and really appreciated how Tommy wove everything together. Yeah, no, it was great. And, and I think one thing that I noticed while flipping through the pages was there's a lot of life lessons in the book. Uh, and, you know, far beyond baseball, too. Is that kind of an angle that you want to convey to the readers that, um, you know, many life lessons can be built through baseball, not just through baseball, but also through kind of the spirit of competition as well? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't want it to be about uh, Joey grew up on 11th Street in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, <laughs> Little League Baseball, that kind of stuff. I didn't want that. And that's part of like, uh, I, I actually wrote a a piece on hitting in 1988 or 89, I think it was, and um, it was in Hermosillo, Mexico, helping out Bill Lashman with his team. I did it on a, uh, a word processor, and I showed it to some people. They wanted me to do something. Then ah, I'm not. It's not time. And the point was, um, yeah, you're right. I, a lot of the little life lessons, the different uh, para, uh, uh, titles to the different uh, chapters. For instance, you know, don't permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure. Uh, tell me what you think, what you, not what you've heard, things like that. There's, there's a lot going on under the five levels of being a professional. So I wanted it to appeal to a wider audience, uh, an audience of uh, professionals, leaders, CEOs, school teachers, coaches, and not just baseball people. So I'm really pleased. Uh, it is. It's an accumulation of a lot of thought over many years, and I think it came out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd say so, too. Uh, I actually found myself laughing at some of the stories 
that were in there. Um, how was that experience kind of going back and, and digging into your memory and, um, you know, digging into the brain cells and trying to recall uh, a lot of these instances that took place throughout the course of your career? Did you remember a lot of them like by heart or did you kind of have to rely on Mr. Tom Verducci to maybe put in a, you know, go deeper into the actual facts exact to get it exactly right? Um, so, so tell me a little bit about, about the process of uh, digging up those uh, stories and those anecdotes. You're right on, man. Both of that. I, I, I have a pretty good memory when it comes to recollecting uh, events. Uh, so what I attempted to do was just a chronological dig. Uh, started like you know high school, Lafayette College, minor league baseball, how I got signed, all that kind of stuff. And then I would record and send it into Tom daily and to... Sean Desmond, who was the publisher at 12, and then David Black, my, our literary agent, and, and Louise Sussuris, my wife's uh, sister, would do the transcribing. And they would look at the stuff, and then they would come back at me the next morning and exactly what you said, dig deeper here. Tell me more about this, which is that's the part that you don't really anticipate or understand until you do it, because you, you're kind of, I don't want to say superficial, but you have your memories. But then when you're caused, you're asked to think, uh, to dig more deeply, other things pop up. So it was kind of an interesting experience. The process was outstanding. Something I've always wanted to do, but now I've done it. And uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, the, the story about the minor league trainer punching one of your pitchers uh, in the jaw and breaking his jaw. That was great. That one made me laugh. But briefly, and as briefly as you could uh, kind of tell us without giving it away, because obviously we want people to go and, and buy this book uh, and go out and read the book for yourself. But tell me the condensed version of when one of your players, there's a, a part in the book where you mentioned one of your players stepped out uh, and, and didn't show up to the game. And instead he went to a concert. That was one of my favorite stories. Jay Bird, Jay Lewis. And I, like I said, I hope he reads this book or gets back in touch with me. I want to apologize for what happened to him afterwards. It shouldn't <laughs> have been that severe. It should not have been that severe. Uh, but uh, my, uh, my pitching coach, really, Amante Aguda, was hip to things. And he said, he heads up. There's a Van Halen concert in town, and Jay loves Van Halen. And so just want to give you that kind of a heads up. So uh, the, here comes the concert. We're playing that night. And all of a sudden, Jay Bird calls in sick, right? And so we're kind of like had a heads up on it. And what I did was I Richard Zaleski was my trainer. I said, Richard, the, when the game begins, I want you to go to his apartment and knock on the door and see if he's there. And so he goes there and he, uh, of course, knocks on the door and then there was no answer. So comes back and tells me that, call him and verify everything that had occurred right there. Does and still nothing. So Jay Bird the next day, I call him in the office. I said, hey, what happened last night? Are we, how ill were you? Are you okay? Is everything all right? He said, yeah. He said, I, you know, I'm, I'm sick, but I'm feeling a lot better today. He says, but I sent my our trainer over there and you didn't answer the door. You didn't answer the phone. Oh, I had her skip out to pick up some drugs or whatever. I said, Jay, don't insult my intelligence. Just tell me one thing. How good was the concert? He said, the best I've ever been to, <laughs> which should have been enough for me. Find him 10 bucks or whatever, but the guy gets released over this and it still bothers me that it had happened. He was a fun loving guy. I was an outfielder, I think from Oklahoma. Good dude. It's too bad. It happened that way, but that's what happens in the minor leagues. Sometimes guys skip out on a game to go see Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's good. That one I think made me laugh out loud. And 
um the rest of the people i was with were, were looking at me like what's going on what are you reading and i was like oh it's just joe madden's book so uh after you finish playing i mean you hopped right into coaching um it was kind of like an automatic for you uh your first year managing was you know you were 27 years old and your first real managing gig at the big league level you were 52 so you mentioned that in the book you were in a way grateful uh, that it took you so long to get to the big leagues. Why is that? Why was, you know, grateful the right word? Why, why were you grateful that it took that long for you to finally make it to the bigs? Because by the time I got there, I was prepared. I was absolutely prepared. Um, I'd done everything possible you could do in the minor leagues. I had screwed up as much as anybody can screw up in the minor leagues as a coach, as in the manager. And I talk about Midland, Texas, when I uh, posted uh, one ads on the back of uh, uh, stalls for, bathroom stalls and an above urinal so players could read what their options were if they didn't want to play hard enough bad moment in my in my baseball career so i've gone through all these different things um i've learned different techniques different thoughts different methods by observing as well as learning from really good coaches and mentors so when you get to be 51 52 um honestly i had done almost everything possible on a minor league level i had coached i had managed i had scouted i had been a hitting coach i'd been a base running coach i'd been a catching coach so i felt ready so when anything pops up on the big league level i really believe i'm uniquely qualified in today's game uh with what i've been through to do that particular job and that's what i'm most grateful about yeah and and there's a point that you wrote uh that you were going to quit coaching it was right after another minor league coach with the angels one of your colleagues was called up instead of you uh, and then you encountered a woman on an airplane and she said, quote, whatever you put out out there comes back to you. Um, so do those words kind of still ring true to you today? Do you ever think about them? I think about it often and I tell other people about it. It, um, it was really a seminal moment for me. Jeter, Jeter Hines, my buddy and a really good friend um, and actually was on my staff, not this year, but the year before with the Angels. Um, he got the job in front of me. Him and Doug Rader hit it off. And so Doug chose him over me and uh, all the different things I'd been doing with the organization to that point. I was really upset. And I thought I deserved it. So Bob Clear, my mentor, and I mentioned him a lot in the book, uh, grabs me one day and says, we're going to go for a ride. And we went for a ride out to this little restaurant airport in East Mesa. And I thought, Bob Lou, I'm leaving. I've had enough of this. I'm, you know, I can't do this anymore. Getting passed over like that, it's really pissing me off and I, I won't do it. I can't do it. And he said to me, you don't want that job anyway, because you're going to watch them messing with your hitters and there's not enough for you to do. Trust me, you don't want that job. Okay. So he, you know, I, I wasn't convinced, but he told me that. So then it eventually took a couple, I think months later, or maybe a month or two later yet yeah, to get on that airplane ride when that lady, she's just, you know, wanting to talk and I don't want to talk. And all of a sudden she said that I took my little fuzzy headset off and I said, would you mind repeating what you just said? And she told me it was like an epiphany. Everything just the, the clouds parted, the sun came out. I got off that plane in Midland and I just couldn't get wait to get to work because I had never, ever, never, ever been any kind of a, a dissident discord with any group that ever have always been at the forefront of uh, the action and the enthusiasm. And it was gone. And then it came back with that one phrase. It came back. And I, I don't know how many times I've said that to myself since then in order to get me out of a funk. 
and and this is one thing that I've been I've been thinking about when I was uh, reading the book. Did you ever feel kind of misperceived as a manager? Because you know when when you first got to the Rays and you had all that success and you know World Series appearance in two thousand eight, um, you kind of had that that the the, the Rays kind of had that I guess uh, so called cutting edge front office, and you were kind of described as this new revolutionary manager, a progressive mind in baseball bringing in the animals and, and the clowns into the clubhouse, the petting zoos, you know, using data and advanced analytics, you know, is that overblown? Do you think, you know, that, that kind of got, you know, th- there's more information in today's game than ever before. Do you feel like that was, you know, overblown a little bit? Uh, were you misperceived in that way of being described as, you know, I guess a revolutionary progressive baseball thinker when it came to analytics? Well, I just described to you how I got there and all the different things that I've done. I mean, I really have a tremendous uh, background in teaching and coaching this game. And only the people only wanted to pay attention to this other stuff that I was doing. And that was just done primarily for the camaraderie within the group to get guys to loosen up, to not take themselves so seriously, to not worry how you dressed. I want you to, I want you to be you when you show up today. I don't want you to have to worry about how you look uh, on an airplane, as an example. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it's been, always been uh, funny to me how people have uh, focused on all the superficial stuff I did intentionally to create a vibe, to create interest, to get guys to relax, to have fun, to just purely to have fun. Whereas my background is, as a coach and as a teacher is as deep as it gets in the game today. And then actually, like, you got to go back to the days of some of the old uh, Dodger greats and, and Cardinal uh, coaches I kind of rival their their process getting there. So that's the only point. It doesn't bother me. It's just, it's like, really, you're going to, you're going to focus on that. And whereas I, you just ask any of the coaches I've worked with and many, and most all the players, uh, the depth of my, my coaching abilities and nobody talks about that. I, uh, I mentioned to some people that I was going to have you on and they were like, oh, well, Joe Madden, you know, he was the first guy, him and Andrew Friedman in Tampa Bay, uh, they were the first ones to collaborate on lineups and stuff. And uh, they were the first ones to do that. And then I read, and then I read your book and you talked a lot about managing with your gut. And that was a topic that was touched on quite a bit. Uh, and you said something that stuck out. I actually wrote it down here. You said, quote, it is the difference between making in-game decisions and acquisitions in the off season. The ones in the off season should absolutely be guided by information and deliberation. So, so what does that mean, managing with your gut? Uh, for those that maybe have kind of gone away from that, I know a lot of managers in baseball have, um, I guess, gone away from managing with their gut. Uh, and baseball fans might really not know what the term is because it's been so long since we've seen it. So I guess in, in, in very simple terms, Joe, what does managing with your gut actually mean? Feel, the feel, the word feel is the gift of experience. I just described to you all the different things I've done for so many years. Um, I've seen most situations that are going to occur and you have to be able to react in the moment. There's way too much uh, made of or, or, or stated about analytics and how the game is played today. It's not played according to analytics, uh, which required of the player a lot of times are uh, framed by analytics. Strikeouts are okay. You try to get your walk, try to hit home runs, spin the ball at the top of the strike zone. There's really not a lot of uh, baseball depth to any of that stuff. It's just the way it's being played 
right now. Uh, when I was with the Rays back then, Andrew and I, yeah, collaborated a lot. And I've I'm, I really am pretty much known as a collaborator because I'm into all that stuff. That's, I hope people don't miss the point. I love the information. I don't like the way it's being carried into the clubhouse and infiltrated and, and imposed in the clubhouse. That's what I don't like. So quite frankly, a lot of the guys that are doing the game now don't have that depth of experience as a coach or even just managing games. So it's hard to rely on feel if you have nothing as a basis to feel from. I guess that's the best way I could describe it. So game in progress, man. I have, before the game, I sit down and actually I got one of these right here. Wow. Uh, I don't know if you could see that, but this is uh, an example from September 24th, 2019. We're playing the Pirates, but this is the sheet I worked off of. And all these numbers are items that I've talked to the analytical people about constructing so that I could be uh, look at during the course of the game, but primarily before the game to create my uh, process, including right down to writing relief pitchers' names in after different hitters on the other team for your matchups. And then, of course, on the back, there's even more stuff there. All of this stuff I recreated with Andrew with the Rays. Um, so you got you got to play the game before the game's ever played in order to do this. And I did, and I did, and I still do. The game plays. It rarely goes according to plan. You have to be ready to uh, go, off, go off script. And to go off script, you have to have a pretty good feel for what you're doing. And when the game's over, you need to play it one more time. And that's, that's the part I don't think that's really spoken about enough. And I learned that from Gene Mock, quite frankly. And uh, Gene always told me, you play the game three times before, during, and after. Theory and reality are two different things, brother. It's rare that theory and reality meet on those particular nights. You kick somebody's butt, you go home and you haven't even sweat at one time. What did you notice in, in recent years when you left a, let's say an inexperienced pitcher in the game for his third time through the batting order? Because you wrote some words there that kind of described the front office maybe being a little bit antsy with you. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, uh, there's this blanket uh, indictment that you can't pitch the third time through the batting order. I think that's ridiculous. Um, there are some guys that get their butt kicked a third time through. I meant that. And you've got to keep an eye on those guys. And you know that before the game. But even if one of those guys is cruising on a certain night, now is the time to stretch them. Now is the time to stretch their mind. Now is the time to make them believe in themselves more than they ever have before. And that's what you're, that's what you're always looking for. Um, and in the book, the perfect example about Jake Arrieta pitching that complete game in Minnesota. And what I thought it did for him that season. I just did a, a show with him yesterday. I saw Jake yesterday about that. It's, it's a great line. A mind once stretched has a difficult time going back to its original form. If we don't permit these guys to become great and stretch their boundaries, they never will. So uh, that's also this analytical component that you can't do certain things. Again, I, I totally disagree with it. And overarching point is don't you, as you grow up and be, because I can already tell you're going to do really well in this game. Never get in the way of somebody's greatness based on your mores, what you believe, what you think. Uh, there's genius out there. Shohei Otani's a genius. And we permitted him last year to pitch and hit simultaneously. And look what happened. So uh, conventional wisdom, I'm not into it. Um, the wisdom that you need to follow is the one that you have to think all the way through. Tell me what you think, not what you've heard. And feel and see. Last point, that's why I don't sit in a dugout. I got to feel the game. And if you don't believe and feel as a sixth or seventh sense, then you're missing out on a lot.
man, that's that's art right there. That's that sounds like church. Um, at some point, is this all going to boil over though? Because you know, with the front office, is it going to boil over to the point where executives are on the field in uniform? You know, they're they're maybe going to hire some more people that have the ability to hit fungos. You know, executives hitting fungos on the field. Um, you know, maybe cut out that middleman altogether. Or, you know, is that happening already? Or do you see that happening in the in the near future? Well, that's what's kind of trending right now. I mean, you really don't need a lot of experience to get to the to the major leagues as a coach. I mean, listen, we, when I was coming up, my God, I mean, there, there was so much competition to be that guy. And you had to go through all the different steps in order to be considered at all uh, to become a major league coach. Would I really, that was my original goal. And then, of course, to become a manager. But if, if you're just going to rely on spreadsheets and uh, you know, analytics and matrices, et cetera, matrices, I mean, then you could do that. Absolutely. You could have anybody sit in the dugout. The middle manager could read the script. Like you said, you could have guys uh, hitting fungos to the point. I'm, what I understand, they're using pitching machines now for ground balls, and that's <laughs> going to be next on the um, – and I listen, I'm into that too. I do. I'm, I'm into all kinds of different stuff, like you said. I mean, I, listen, the stuff that they're doing now, they think that it's original or new. I, I was doing that stuff in the 80s. I swear to you, I was, and I'm not going to sit here and pat myself on the back. But everybody thinks it's new kind of stuff. It isn't, uh, not at all. What is new is the fact that um, uh, experience, wisdom is really not being sought after. Uh, actually, they're seeking inexperienced and controllable commodities. That's what's being sought after. And that's why the game's in trouble. And that's what people don't like about it. Tell me a little bit about the lead bolts. Uh, you know, as a kind of a, a council of players that you hand selected at the beginning of the season to be kind of in a leadership role. And then at some point in Chicago, it kind of got destroyed and interfered with by the front office. So give us some more information, I guess, on, on the lead bulls and uh, what they did. Um, that was going back to my like, mid seventies. I read a book by James Michener called Centennial and, um, in that book, he talked about the creativity and ingenuity of the uh, Indians. And what they would do, they would find a lead uh, bull of a herd and a buffalo herd, and he'd start running them towards a cliff. And by the time he got there, no, the herd's falling. him. all of a sudden, hey, they put on the brakes like in a cartoon. They can't stop. They're falling over the side. And down below is a, as a, the tribe down there ready to carve it up for food, clothing, and shelter. The point was to get your lead bulls running in the right direction. I'm not insinuating you have anybody fall over a cliff. It's just to get everybody to follow. So if you get the lead bulls, and I would, I would choose them, who I thought was the most influential guys on the team, we would sit down and talk about or discuss our policies. And from that, I would want them then to take it into the clubhouse and not me. I'm always into empowering groups, into people. So that was it. I wanted them on the same page uh, with me. And I knew that if they were, then this clubhouse has a much better chance of working well and together, which really almost 100% of every great team has that within it. So that was the concept. It came, was born of the book Centennial about how Indians uh, 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 got to the point where they could um, uh, get their food, clothing, and shelter by being geniuses. And then I wanted to do the same thing on a major league level. Let's touch a little bit more on that Cub team in 2016, Joe. Um, you know, the curse, the personalities, not to toot your own horn or anything, but uh, some of those in-game, you know, 
strategy, in-game strategy decisions, uh, a lot of which you described in your book, and those epic postseason games. I mean, would you say that managing that team to a championship was the highlight of your baseball career? Sure, I have to. I mean, to win the first World Series in 108 years. And, um, you know, we did we did a lot of things. We did a lot of interesting things. And we had the personnel to do it. had the support from the front office to do it. Uh, the players showed up every day with energy. And that's part of playing at Wrigley, though, too. The fans, the, the fans didn't even say demand it. They create the energy. You could be a, a Monday. We played a Monday afternoon game. How about this? Their makeup against the Cleveland Indians makeup game on one o'clock full house Lester versus Kluber place was insane. There's no other place you're going to go on a makeup game on a Monday at one o'clock or one twenty in the afternoon that you're going to get that kind of reaction. So these people actually, that's what the cup fans do. They generate uh, energy for the rest of the group. And that, that was a big part of our success. And yeah, I mean, to manage this particular group it was a very charismatic group. And all these guys have been sought after since then, as you can see, they're all over the place now. Uh, but together, as we were growing together, that was the youngest team that had won the World Series to that point. A lot of energy, a lot of excitement, uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, great conversations, commonalities, synergy, all that stuff was going on with that group. And I had so much fun with every one of them. Um, it was, it was, it was wonderful, spectacular, energizing. They go to the ballpark every day. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. When I when I read that you described the game, you know, game seven in 2016 as a warm night in Cleveland, I was a little shocked because, I mean, that, that doesn't sound like Cleveland in October. Um, so I was a little taken aback by that, not going to lie. Well, it was. Yeah, it was. It actually was. Um, that, that the, I think both games were warmer than, than you would think for uh, end of October, beginning of November, right around Halloween. And uh, yeah, and even right down to the rainstorm. I mean, you're, that rain delay, you're still out there and you're not freezing your butt off, game over. Then all of a sudden it started pouring and you're just walking around just happy. You'd never been happier in your life and it could have been freezing cold, pouring, but it wasn't. It was just kind of a, a cool vibe. Game over, I had to go talk to the TV people in that little booth and my wife Jay was with me. And I'm telling you, talk about satisfaction or, or completeness or uh, the warm, warmest fuzz you've ever had. That, that's what occurred right after that game. Yeah, and you've managed in some interesting climates. Uh, you got the Windy City in Chicago. You got whatever the hell you want to call, uh, you know, Florida. Florida's climate is just, uh, you know, we could sit here all day. And then you got, of course, uh, the Angels in Anaheim. And you go back to Anaheim ahead of the 2020 season. And, and I think one of the top things, you know, you did there was you mentioned this a few minutes ago was in relation to Shohei Otani. You're the first guy to say, okay, here we go. It's time to take the training wheels off this kid. Let's let him loose. Uh, let's, you know, let, let's not, let's not baby him anymore. And it worked out, you know, and now he's one of the best players in the uniform, uh, the universe, really. I mean, he's, he's going to finish in the MVP voting for the next 20 years. I mean, he's one of the best players in the game. There's no doubt about it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the angels and, and you making the decision not to baby him anymore. Well, no, it had to happen. He, that's why he signed. That's why he came to the United States to do those things. So we were denying him that opportunity to be great. Think about it. Had we not done that for him, 
and give him that 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 showcase that 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 opportunity because he went from zero innings pitch to whatever it was last year, the end of last season, which would have scared the crap out of everybody else. And then he was playing day before and day after and day that he did pitch because the 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 rules we had, the groundwork we established was Shohei the night before whatever the game we're going to talk and you're going to tell me what you want to do the next day. And if you feel, he told me, he said, if my legs get tired, I have to be careful. I said, fine. You know when your legs are tired, I don't. So the night before we play, you tell me exactly what's going on, and that's what we're going to do. And that's it. That was the process. Everybody wants to, to, to build all these different models and, and, and ask questions and uh, do all these different technological, scientific stuff. Not necessary. Shohei, how do you feel, brother? Either you trust them or you don't trust them. And that was it. And I trusted him and he trusted me. And that's how it worked out. Yeah. And without a doubt, I think it's easy to forget that these players are, are human beings for sure. Uh, and I guess the tail end of what happened in Anaheim, do you feel like managerial firings during the season are in a way total hogwash to a degree? For example, I mean, you know, the angels can you in the midst of a 12 game losing streak and they automatically name Phil Nevin, who is your right-hand man in Anaheim as the interim manager. And, you know, let me just say that I, I'm sure you have the utmost respect for Phil, obviously. And um, he's been regarded within the game as a managerial prospect for, for quite a while now. But, you know, teams do this all the time where they, they fire a manager and they promote someone from that manager's staff. Maybe because, you know, it's, it could be hard for uh, a new person externally to come in and, and, and learn a clubhouse and they don't want to change anything new in the middle of the season. I get that. But do you, do you think it's kind of an overrated thing to, you know, fire a manager and then hire someone right from their staff? Cause it seems a little tedious in many ways. Well, I, I think the only time in my mind's eye, if I was to, to be in that position that you let a manager go in season is if he's totally lost the clubhouse. If there's a real rift there, that's, that's uh, recognizable and you're around it all the time. So you understand what I'm talking about. That would be the reason why you would do something like that in season. I mean, losing streaks, I mean, no, uh, that would, uh, especially after the great start that we had, it just, that's the part that was incongruent to me. Um, so yeah, if, if you lose your clubhouse and, and everybody knows what that feels like that's been involved in the game, that's a different story. But if you've just endured some really difficult times, I mean, your best players aren't hitting, your bullpen is imploding on a nightly basis, there's reasons that this is occurring. And that's when these people need your support not to be blown up. So yeah, but, but when Perry came to speak with me about it, um, we had a great conversation and he's, he's, I still consider him a good friend. We just talked not long ago. Um, I was just concerned that he was going to let some of my coaches go. That's what my, my concern was when he came to the house. And I was actually relieved when it was me and not them. So it's just part of the game. It's part of how this thing winds out. Everybody's got their own interpretation of how to react to situations and moments. Um, not how I would have reacted to it, but that's the way it is. And, uh, my, my, uh, handicaps down to 7.5 on the index right now. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> that's nice. That's awesome. And of course the, uh, the, the three uniforms, uh, that you wore angels, rays, cubs, what do you identify most with? Can you pick from the buffet there? You know, Joe Madden, for example, if, if the hall of fame were to call you tomorrow and say, Joe Madden, you're inducted into the hall of fame. You got to pick a cap. If you had to pick a uniform that you identify most with in your career, what would it be? Quite frankly, up to like being let go was the Angels. That was my um, 
and that's where I was born. That was that's, that's where I grew up. It was there thirty some years, uh, but I can't say that anymore. I just I just can't. And uh, not out of vengeance or hate. I just can't say that anymore. It's just not. I don't feel that. That's why I went back there in the first place after the Cubs, because I really wanted to be part of the resurgence there, and bring the group back where we had been a real gritty group, played the game hard and right kind of a group. Um, that's that was my intent, but I never got that opportunity. Um, it'd be tough. Um, between the Rays and the Cubs, um, who knows? We'll see how it all plays out. But winning a World Series um, for the first time in 108 years is very difficult to walk away from. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and uh, before we wrap up here, I I know there's a lot of listeners in the Bay Area, and I figured I'd throw this in there um, and and shout out the Bay Area people. You managed Gabe Kapler, the current Giants manager, for two years in Tampa Bay there, and you mentioned him a little bit in your book, saying that he was. Uh, smart enough to be like, you know, one of your future bench coaches one day. Um, so what have you kind of noticed from, from watching him? And, you know, he was very heavily criticized those first two years in Philadelphia as their manager. Um, and then he comes to the giants and has a good year and then wins 107 games. What have you kind of seen from Gabe from his managerial career and uh, where he is right now? He's gotten more comfortable. There's no, no question about it. He and I talked a lot in, when he was in Philadelphia. Going back to Tampa Bay, I told Andrew, I, I said, if, this, if Gabe wants to stop playing, I'd really like to consider him as the bench coach if we had an opening at any particular point or that he would be a good bench coach down the road. Um, I, I really, in Tampa Bay, again, he, he helped me a lot in the clubhouse, uh, not as a snitch. If something was going on, like a player was underperforming in some way, I would ask him to mosey up to him and see what we could do to, to help this guy. He was really good at conversations with players. And, uh, and, I, and I thought, man, this, this guy's going to be really good at this stuff. Um, so he gets the opportunity in Philadelphia. Of course, it did not work out. And he goes to San Francisco. Uh, and the last year was the perfect storm in all the best ways. I mean, Posey had a year that he had built. Um, I mean, there's some really good professionals there, man. We had to beat them in Chicago, and they're still frigging there uh, doing well. So. It was, a, it was a nice situation last year, and I know this year it's not been the same, but best thing I could, uh, way I could describe it, I've seen him grow from a, in the role as a, as a, in a comfortable way. Um, he's always been outspoken, and he's really, he's kind of brilliant, actually, um, and I've always liked that about him, but I think, you know, when you're, when you're playing offense as a manager, meaning that you're, when you're doing well, you, whatever you, 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 what you want to say is a little bit stronger, and you're more sure of it, as compared to like maybe in Philadelphia, when you're not winning, you're on defense all the time, you're playing defense as a manager. So I think he's been on the offensive and I'm happy for that because they have done so. I know this year is not what they wanted, uh, but I liked what I saw last year and I really wish him nothing, the best, nothing but the best as he continues to grow, but a lot more comfort as, as what I'm seeing, a lot more um, sure of himself. And another guy that uh, you described as a baseball genius in, in the book and uh, one of your many baseball geniuses, I just say, was Evan Longoria. And he's kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the twilight of his career. I think personally he's got, um, you know, if he's on the field, he's got a few years left in him. And when he is healthy, he's, he's an above average uh, hitter at the big league level. And, um, you know, he's doing a lot of things right. He's got the leadership thing going for him in the clubhouse. I mean, how is it kind of watching Evan Longoria and his career unfold? I know you had him when, he was, he was younger and he was the guy in Tampa Bay. And here he is in San Francisco, kind of in a different phase uh, of his career. What can you say about him and 
uh, his takeaway, your takeaways from watching him and, and managing Evan. Very proud. Um, I love what he's done. Uh, he was one of the most clutch players I've ever had, just by evidence by that uh, best night in baseball home run down the left field line against Scott Proctor. Uh, but Longo, Longo, there's never a moment that's too big for him. He's uh, very good at slowing things down. He's got a real strong mental game, and that's I don't think he gets credit for that enough. Uh, defensively, he's been one of the best third basemen in baseball since he's been doing this there. Like I said, offensively, he'll, he'll run into some streaks now and then, but man, the ball comes off the bat hot. When he's righteous, the ball comes off hot, and he could use from right center all the way down the left field line. He was a really good base runner when he first came up, and he, he was stealing some bases. I think he's hurt his legs a little bit, and that took away from him because this guy, complete deal. He, he was a, the definite five-tool guy. And on top of that, he went to Long Beach State, which I'm a big fan of that program down there. Any dirt bag, I will take a dirt bag. If I'm scouting, I, I scout, I draft at least one dirt bag annually. I want at least over five years, I'll have five dirt bags in my system. Um, that was uh, Dave Snowman, Mike Weathers, and it continued on from there. I am, and my boy Ken Revisa, the sports psychologist, was a part of that. Uh, I really love guys that come from that. You know why? It's a fundamentalist kind of a school. Um, they play the game right. These guys that I mentioned, these coaches, you, if you're a part of the Southern California culture growing up in baseball, college, junior college, or high school, you have been taught properly. That's right. Good call on the, the former Long Beach State dirtbag. Actually, former dirtbag Marco Estrada, the right-handed pitcher uh, with a really good changeup. He came on the podcast a while back. Uh, so, yeah, anyways, uh, before we head out here, I just want to say that San Francisco fans, Joe, you know, they believe that if Johnny Cueto were to appear in one of those division series games later in the series, if, if the Cubs were to see Johnny Cueto again, there's a lot of fans that say the Giants would have given the Cubs a really harder time and maybe would have even beaten them. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> so I'm in agreement. I, I, I thought the same thing. When we were playing that game four, I wanted to do everything possible to win it, but, but there was nothing showing up. Matty Moe, Matt Moore pitched a great game. He drove in a run. And I know Matty when he gets on a roll, but so you're saving your bullpen, you're saving your bullpen. You got to think about that next game. And then all of a sudden, uh, that opportunity to pinch it when we went from um, Addison to Coughlin to Wilson, that kind of opened things up there a little bit, but there's no way I want Cueto and look up Cueto's numbers against that Cub team. They were like non-existent. He, he dominated. We had the home run by Javi in the basket. That was the one nothing win. Yeah. And of course the, uh, the bullpen completely imploding for San Francisco there. Um, so, Joe, I'd imagine there's going to be another managerial carousel this offseason. Um, do you have any desires to put your hat in the ring and, and manage again? Is that something you're interested in? I do. Uh, I do. But, uh, I mean, I hate to sound like with caveats. I'm just because I'm the one looking for a job. Yeah. But I need to, I need to work with somebody um, that we, have, we share some common uh, philosophies. I, I can't necessarily... Like I said, uh, have all this intrusion right before the game and the way analytics is, is, is presented. I want it, but I want to present it in a different way. I want coaches to be the superior in the conversation and not the inferior to the analytical department. I want the manager to be able to before the game, nobody in my office, if I need my pitching coach, if I need something, I'll ask, but let me sit there and play the game before the game actually begins. A lot of, lot of people running in and out of the clubhouse these days way late in the, in the, in the process. And I'm not into that. 
So there's there's things like that that would have to be worked through. There might be that um, that group out there, and if there is, that'd be wonderful. And if there's not, uh, hope there'll be a five handicap by next year. <laughs> exactly. Get all that work done in the uh, in the golf course. All right. The book is called The Book of Joe. Try not to suck at baseball and life. Joe Madden, uh, of course, and uh, Tom Verducci. Uh, Joe is a three-time Baseball Manager of the Year Award winner, and Tom is a three-time National Sports Writer of the Year Award. So there you go. And yeah, I appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. And uh, by the way, that book comes out October 11th. So go check that out. Um, uh, but no, I appreciate the time. This was great. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Stephen. And listen, I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, brother. Um, your ability to break things down kind of exceeds some other people. So stay with it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the words. Uh, you guys could follow the podcast, of course, on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, wherever you find your podcast, Go check us out. Subscribe, like, do all that fun stuff. And some more interviews coming up soon. And see you next time.